Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. Bless us now as we study from your word. And we thank you for this privilege. Help us to learn things that will open our eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, again, we're going to be picking up in Hebrews chapter 12. And as a brief review from last week, we covered the concept of verses 39 and 40 in Hebrews 11 that where it talks about the heroes of faith, how they all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. And just by brief way of review, these all, including Enoch who was translated, Moses who was resurrected, have received not the promise. What is that? That they without us should not be made perfect. The word perfect is tied to the word perfect in Hebrews 10, which describes the blotting out of sin. And so even Enoch and Moses who are in heaven have not had their sins blotted out because that's what happens at the end of the judgment in the heavenly sanctuary on the day of atonement. And so then in verses 1 through 4, we are given the exhortation to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When we get to the end of that race, we'll have the same faith that Jesus has. We run with patience. And Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God, he's the author and finisher of our faith, but he's also described as our high priest at the right hand of God in Hebrews 8. And as our high priest, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. And if he writes his law into our hearts and minds, that means we will be an obedient people. That's the new covenant. We run with patience, and at the end of the race, we have the faith of Jesus. So that combination, you see the 144,000. That's the group of people who are translated without seeing death. And they are the group of people that because of them, all those who obtained a good report through faith will receive the promise of being made perfect or in other words having their sins blotted out in the judgment so that's a brief review of what we looked at last week and i, I think i'll pick it up in verse three this week and there's some interesting some very interesting points in the remainder of Hebrews chapter 12. Of course, we spent a lot of time talking about verses 1 through 4, but we're going to look at what the rest of the chapter describes. So picking up in verse 3, it says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. So when we run this race with patience, there is going to be plenty of opportunities to become weary and faint in our mind. And what Paul is exhorting us to do is to consider him, consider Jesus. Look at what Jesus went through when he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And when we consider him, when we look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, he will help us to resist unto blood striving against sin. Now, I almost forgot to mention this again, but some of you have asked, you know, where does Ellen White say that Paul is the author of Hebrews? And I was going to say this last week, and I'll just mention it this week. This is one place. There's probably other places. She's specifically referring to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is found in Review and Herald, October 18, 1881, paragraph 6, if you're on the CD-ROM. And she refers to 
running the race and how Paul exhorts us to run the race. And then she goes to 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And then she goes to the passage in 2 Timothy where Paul says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. And she connects those three passages together, Hebrews 12, 1 Corinthians 9, and um, 2 Timothy about running the race. So very clearly, if you believe Ellen White is inspired, then you'll believe that Paul is the author of Hebrews. So we consider Jesus who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And Paul says, look, you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. So the moment you become weary and faint in your minds in this pathway of life, you sin. But consider Jesus. He didn't. And if we look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, he will help us in our fight against sin in this life as well. Now, we're going to continue on here, picking up in verse 5. It says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as, he, as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Now, when you look at those three verses there, 5, 6, and 7, does it make you think of any other passage of Scripture? How about Revelation 3? Let's go to Revelation 3. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> Jesus gives a chastening message to the Laodicean church. He says, we think we're rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing, but actually we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then he counsels us what to do. And then in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see the, the similarity in language to Hebrews 12? So who Jesus loves, he rebukes and chastens. And in Hebrews 12, Paul is saying, Look, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. So it's interesting when you look at the passage earlier, it says, um, consider him when you endure such contradiction of sinners against yourself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And in verse 5 it says, faint not when you're rebuked of the Lord. So sometimes when we're called to run this race with patience, that means to endure the chastening of the Lord. And the Lord allows us to be chastened or to be tried by having to deal with people who try our patience. Look, Jesus endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. What do we do when we are placed in trying circumstances and we're with people that, let's say, they get on our nerves? And um, we feel like giving them a piece of our mind, so to speak. 
Um, do we consider Jesus who endured the contradiction of sinners against himself? He opened not his mouth, but committed all to God that judges righteously? Or do, or do we um, speak up for ourselves and fight for our rights? That's one of the ways, it's not the only way, but that's certainly one of the ways that the, the Lord allows us to be chastened. Of course, he also rebukes us, and that rebuking message is the Laodicean message that we think we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And that is, in essence, spiritual language because Jesus says, you know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And we've talked about this before, but the word wretched is also found in Romans 7 to describe the man of Romans 7 who doesn't do the things he wants to do and he does the things he doesn't want to do. And at the end of the chapter, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's the Laodicean man. And the word miserable in the Laodicean message is found in one other place. That's 1 Corinthians 15. That describes the man who in this life only has hope in Christ. And many in Laodicea think that in this life, that they're on their way to heaven, but actually it's only a hope in this life because they're going to find out in the resurrection that they came up in the wrong resurrection and that their hope in Christ was only in this life on earth, but not for eternity. So that's a spiritual message and it's a message of rebuke. It's like, what? You saying that about me? How, how could that be true? But Jesus is, Jesus is saying, look, I love you and I want you to be with me, so I'm giving you a message of rebuke. And Paul is saying, look, if we are sons of God, we should be able to endure the chastening of the Lord, nor, and we should not faint when we are rebuked of him, because the Lord loves whom he chastens, and if we endure chastening, then God dealeth with us as with sons. And then continuing on, verse 8, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. So it's like, if, if, a, if a father has a son, and then there's someone that doesn't belong to him, more than likely he's going to deal with his son and get his son in shape, and he'll let whoever's in charge of this other child deal with that person. So if God isn't chastening us, then we aren't really his children. And we should be thankful that he chastens us because that shows that he loves us and we're his children. So we should be thankful for the trials that he allows us to pass through. That's, that's good. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. That's very good. Verse 9, continuing on, says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. And I would, I would think it would be fair to say that, you know, we think back to our fathers, probably more often than not the fathers are the one who are who come across as being maybe a little bit more stern and they give a little bit more discipline the mothers give a little bit more of the love of course it's love from both angles just a different flavor of it um, but when we think about you know our fathers you know we look back and you're like you know I'm so glad that my dad told me that the way I talked in front of those people when I was seven years old was inappropriate and he spanked me for it because if I had developed a habit of continuing to do that I would be a complete jerk today 
I'm thankful for my father keeping me in line. And, we, and we're like, man, I'm so glad for my father how he appropriately disciplined me. And so we give them reverence and we th think back and we say, you know, my dad did the best that he could and I'm thankful for how he loved me and took care of me and, and kept me in line, so to speak. So if we give our fathers that kind of reverence for disciplining us in that respect, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? So if we give reverence to our earthly fathers, shouldn't we also feel that way about God the Father? That He chastens and rebukes us because He wants us to be with Him in heaven forever. So He allows us to be chastened and to be rebuked to prune or purge the things in our lives that would keep us from being with Him forever. Verse 10, for they, our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So why does God allow us to be chastened? So, so that we might be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So in the heat of the trial, it doesn't feel too good. But later on, what does the chastening yield? It says the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So when we have the fruit of righteousness, we will also have the peace of God in our lives a peace that passes understanding. And <clears throat> you may wonder, you know, we talk a lot about running the race with patience, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we talk about that, and that's very important, and we've spent a lot of time in our Hebrews class talking about that. But v verses 5 through several verses later, at least through verse 12 or 14, basically give the nuts and bolts of what it means to run with patience the race set before us. And it takes patience to endure the chastening of the Lord. And it takes patience to pass through the trials that God allows us to pass through. But when we uh, look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, when we endure the chastening of the Lord, the end result is the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. And so that is what Paul is exhorting us to do, to endure the chastening of the Lord. And it's interesting, this connects directly to the message to the Laodicean church where Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten especially the Laodicean church needs the message of enduring the chastening and the rebuke of the Lord because it's the Laodicean church that is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so God sends a message of chastening and rebuke. And if the Laodicean people endure that message, they will be prepared to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, and they will be partakers of his holiness. Now, in verse 12, it says, wherefore. 
So because of all this, running the race with patience, enduring the chastening of the Lord, fainting not when you are rebuked, it says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. So humanly speaking, you look at the path that God has set before us. It's a path or a race that requires patience. Well, what does that mean? Well, look, patience and endurance are basically the same word. Well, it means that we need to endure chastening of the Lord and to endure being rebuked of Him. And humanly speaking, we look at that and we're like, oh boy, I don't know if I want to get started on that path. That's, that's kind of a tough path to follow. And Paul says, now wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. So what he's saying is like, look, don't stagger at the, at the pathway that's set before you. Lift up your hands and strengthen your feeble knees. And then he goes on to say, and make straight paths for your feet. So don't allow the trials that you see before you to keep you from walking the straight and narrow pathway and to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because this is for our benefit. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And then notice verse 14. This is what happens when we walk on this straight path. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now the word holiness we saw earlier in verse 10, where it says, God for our profit allows us to endure, endure chastening and to be rebuked that we might be partakers of his holiness. So as we are chastened and as we are rebuked, we partake of his holiness. And as we do so, that allows us to follow peace with all men and we have holiness. And without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So in other words, this pathway is a pathway of holiness. And in order to be on this pathway, you have to have a holy life or the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And if you're not on this pathway, you will not see the Lord. And what is this pathway? It's that pathway where we run with patience the race that is set before us. We endure chastening and the rebuke of the Lord so that we can become partakers of his holiness. Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna just jump ahead to verse 22, which shows us where this pathway is leading us to. And then I'm gonna go back to the book of Isaiah to show how it's crystal clear that this is the case. So we're on this pathway, and in verse 18, 19, he's saying, you know, you're not come to, to the mountain where the voice of God spoke and the earth shook and people were afraid and even Moses was afraid. But in verse 22, he says, but you are come unto Mount Zion and under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So this pathway 
which we are called to run on is a pathway where we have patience. At the end of the race, we have the faith of Jesus. Jesus, is, who is the author and finisher of faith on the right hand of God, is also our high priest seated on the right hand of God. He writes his law into our hearts, so we are a commandment-keeping people. So we have patience, the faith of Jesus. We keep the commandments of God. That's describing the 144,000 in Revelation 14, 12. And this pathway is taking us to Mount Zion. Now, in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, we see that it's the 144,000 who are on Mount Zion with the Lamb. So, if you want to think about it this way, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 22, um, is really a manual to the 144,000 on how to live our lives to be prepared to see Jesus when he comes in the clouds of heaven. So we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. We lay aside every, sin, every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. We look to Jesus. We resist unto blood striving against sin. We endure the chastening of the Lord. We lift up our hands and strengthen the feeble knees. We follow peace with all men. And that brings us to Mount Zion which is where the 144,000 stand with the Lamb in Revelation 14. Now, just in case you're wondering about this connection, I want to take you back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, and this is where Paul gets some of his ideas for Hebrews chapter 12. And this is Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35. It's a fairly short chapter. It's only 10 verses, but Paul was able to extract a lot out of this chapter. <clears throat> now, I'm going to start in verse 3. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3 says, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Now, does that sound similar to Hebrews chapter 12? Verse 12, where it says, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees? Isaiah 35, verse 3 says, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. And in fact, in my Bible margin, it connects Hebrews 12, 12 with Isaiah 35, 3. So um, I'm not the only one who makes that connection. The scholars say Paul's quoting from Isaiah 35, 3 and Hebrews 12. Okay, so what's the connection? Isaiah 35, 3, you strengthen the weak hands, you confirm the feeble knees. It's interesting, verse 5, we know this verse, it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. It's interesting, the Laodicean church is described as being blind. So <clears throat> that's certainly a connection. Then you go on down, and we know that we're being called to walk a pathway. And in verse 8 of Isaiah 35, it says, And an highway shall be there, and a way. So you strengthen your hands and your feeble knees to go on this highway, or a way. And what's this highway called? It's called the way of holiness. Now remember in Hebrews 12 where it says in verse 12, lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees. Verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. In verse 14 it says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And in Isaiah 35, so you strengthen the hands and the feeble knees. 
you go on a highway that's called the way of holiness. You see that connection there? So Paul is clearly drawing from Isaiah 35. Now, where is this highway leading? If you continue on in Isaiah 35, um, in verse, it, I'll just keep reading. It says, the, this highway shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring man, though, f though fool, shall not err therein. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up there on. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So this is a highway for the redeemed. And then notice verse 10, it says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to where? To Zion. So you see this connection? In Hebrews 12, Paul says, look, you're not coming to the earthly Mount Sinai where the, the earth shook when the voice of God spoke and even Moses was afraid, but you're coming to Mount Zion. And that's why he says earlier, lift up the hands which hang down, strengthen the feeble knees, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. In Isaiah 35, it says, strengthen the weak hands and the feeble knees you will go on a highway which is called the way of holiness and it will be the highway of the redeemed that comes to Mount Zion. Now, I want to make this a little more interesting even. And of course, when they come to Mount Zion, it says they will have songs and everlasting joy. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall feel, flee away. So look, maybe the highway that we're on right now it calls us to endure the chastening and the rebuke of the Lord. But at the end of that highway, we will have joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away when we come to Mount Zion. Now, staying in the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> there's another place that talks about a highway. And this is in Isaiah chapter 11. <clears throat> and Isaiah 11 is a, a famous chapter for Adventists that study about the Sabbath and the remnant and so on and so forth. <clears throat> but in Isaiah 35, we see that there's going to be a highway called the Way of Holiness that leads to Mount Zion. In Hebrews 12, we see that it's the Laodicean church that is being exhorted to go on this way of holiness or this highway so that we will be able to come to Mount Zion as the 144,000. And in Isaiah 11, it makes a, a clear connection um, with this concept. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 11, verse 16. So, we have a highway which is called the Way of Holiness, which leads to Mount Zion. Hebrews 12, we see that it's the 144,000 that should be on this pathway because they have the patience of the saints that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 16, notice what it says about this highway. It says, and there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria like it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. And you may say, okay, well, that was for the children of Israel, this highway. Well, <clears throat> actually, if you look, first of all, verse 16 describes the remnant of his people. And then if you go to verse 11, <clears throat> this describes a little bit more about the remnant that are on this highway. Verse 11 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. 
Okay, the Lord is recovering the remnant of his people. How many times is this now? It's the second time. So you have the Israel of old that came up out of the land of Egypt, but now the Lord is setting his hand to recover the remnant of his people the second time. And according to the book of Revelation, who is this remnant people? They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. That's God's last day people. And God has set for his last day remnant people a highway. And if you keep following down to see what this highway is, um, verse 12 says, He shall set up an ensign for the nations. I'm not going to spend all the time to, to study this, but that's the Sabbath. So when God recovered his remnant people in 1844, the Sabbath was recovered as well. And the word ensign or ensign is the same as the word sign in Ezekiel 20 verses 12 and 20. That would be a sign throughout the generations. The Sabbath is a sign. And then in verse 14, I'll just throw in a little bit of Daniel 11. You see that Edom, Moab, and Ammon obey the remnant people. And in Daniel 11, you see that the Edomites, Moabites, and the Ammonites escape from the hand of the king of the north, which is papal Rome. They join the remnant people. So you can see that clear connection. So what I'm trying to show here is that Hebrews chapter 12 describes a race, which could also be described as a pathway or a highway or the way of holiness, which calls us to endure chastening, to faint not when we are rebuked. And at the end of that pathway yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It develops holiness in our lives so that when Jesus comes, those who are on that pathway will see him as he is. You know, in the, in the book of First John, it says, for we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Hebrews 12 says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So <clears throat> when we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, when we lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, when we resist unto blood striving against sin, when we endure the chastening and rebuke of the Lord, that yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness and of holiness in our lives. And that's the characteristics of 144,000 who have patience, the faith of Jesus, holiness, keep the commandments of God, all of those things. So Hebrews 12 is really an instruction manual on how to be the 144,000. And it's written especially to the Laodicean people who think they're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and they realize not that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so therefore, it's not going to be a pleasant experience for people who think that spiritually speaking they are okay to endure the chastening and the rebuke of the Lord, but the Lord is doing that to us because he loves us and he wants us to be on the pathway that prepares us to be part of his last day people who will have holiness and see Jesus in the clouds when he comes. Because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And the Lord wants to see us because he loves us. He died for us. So, continuing on, in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 12, and before I do that, so do you see that connection between Hebrews 12 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 11 and the Laodicean church? Is that clear? Or question? Uh-huh. Verse 45, 
Yeah. Right. That's right. You got it. There you go. So very good. So um, this pathway takes us down to the close of probation, and the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion. That's absolutely true. Michael stands up. That's the close of probation. Yep. So this pathway will lead us to the time of Michael standing up. Now, verse 15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, or the marginal reading says, Lest any man fall from the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So notice verse 15, it says, Looking diligently. And that reminds us again to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How do we look unto him? Diligently. Because if it's a sporadic looking unto Jesus, if we're looking at him half the time and we're looking at the world the other half of the time, guess who's going to win that battle? The world's going to win that battle if we're looking at the world half the time and Jesus the other half of the time. So we look unto Jesus diligently, lest any man fall from the grace of God. How would we fall from the grace of God? Well, there's many ways, but the example that Paul uses is here in verse 15. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, notice what he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up in you. Yes. Uh-huh. Deuteronomy 29:18. Right. So the root of gall and wormwood would be the same as as bitterness. Right, right. So I wanted to take, speaking of this root of bitterness, I wanted to take you to the book of James, which is just the, the next book over. And I want to start in verse 13 of chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 13. It's just the, the book over from Hebrews. James 3.13 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Notice verse 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And then verse um, 17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Now remember how this way of holiness yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So when we have the peaceable fruit of righteousness, we will not have roots of bitterness in our lives. But if we have roots of bitterness in our lives, that is not from above, but that's from um, the devil. And specifically, when you are on this pathway 
of enduring, chastening of the Lord, and fainting not when you're rebuked. One of the ways that we endure chastening, as I said earlier, is to deal with people that frustrate us, that do things that we don't appreciate, that we're upset by. And the Lord allows us to pass through experiences with other people where perhaps they, they wrong us. They do things to us that were clearly wrong, and we have been wronged. And of course, the person who has been most wronged of anyone who's ever walked this earth is Jesus, who did nothing wrong, and yet he was treated unfairly um, to the highest degree. And so when we endure the chastening of the Lord, sometimes we deal with people who mistreat us. So what is our reaction to that? Do we yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness and pray for those people and ask the Lord to forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Or do we have roots of bitterness spring up in our hearts and think about how angry we are with those people and how wrong they've been to us and hold bitter grudges against people like that? And what Paul is saying is, look, we need to look diligently to Jesus because if we hold bitter grudges against people like that, we will fall from the grace of God and we will be defiled. And then he continues on and he says, lest there be any fornicator. That's pretty straightforward. And of course, there's spiritual fornication with spiritual Babylon or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So. Esau is described as being profane. He treated that which was holy as a common thing, his birthright, and he sold it for a mess of pottage. And many of us are, are at risk of selling our heavenly birthright for the pleasures of this earth, which will last for but a short season. So lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And then verse 17, for you know how that afterward when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So we don't want to throw away that which we will regret later um, after the close of probation, so to speak. Verse 18, for you not come unto the mount that might be touched with, that might be touched and that burned with fire. This is Mount Sinai, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. I mean, it would have been very amazing to be there at Mount Sinai when God's voice spoke. I mean, it really scared the people when his voice spoke and it shook the earth. And verse 20, for they could not endure that which, which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So even Moses, who had been in the presence of God, when God's voice spoke and shook the earth, even Moses was afraid. Um, so, but we're not coming to... And rightly so. And we're not coming to that mountain, though, or to that experience. Verse 22 says, But ye are coming to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So if it was, if God's people had to pass through that kind of an experience when the law was first given, imagine what it's going to be like for God's people 
as we're marching to the heavenly Zion. And it's not explicitly stated here, but it's somewhat implied. There's Jacob's time of trouble that God's people will pass through on the way to Mount Zion. And that experience will be much greater of a test than what the earthly Israelites experienced at Mount Sinai. And the only way to pass through that experience is to have learned how to follow peace with all men and holiness on this pathway in life, to run the race with patience set before us. So we are coming to Mount Zion. This is where the 144,000 are going to stand with the Lamb. And unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And there's the concept of the judgment that God is judge. And to his last day people, we will be judged according to whether or not we follow peace with all men and yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness, or if we have the roots of bitterness in our lives that will defile us. <clears throat> Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So Jesus, who is the lamb standing on Mount Zion, he's the mediator of the new covenant. What's the new covenant? He writes his law into our hearts and minds, and our sins he remembers no more because he blots them out. So Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So the blood of the covenant speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth. So those who refused God and they did not escape, they died in the wilderness. Much more, and, and he he makes reference to that in Hebrews 3, that those who entered not into God's rest, but who continually provoked God to wrath, died in the wilderness. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So God is speaking us to, to us from heaven. Are we listening? Are we following? Are we enduring the chastening of the Lord? Because if the children of Israel of old escape not, neither will we. It's very clear. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. That's going to be an amazing day when, when the heavens shake at the voice of God. It's not just going to be Mount Sinai. It's going to be the heavens shaking. That's going to be an incredible day. And we will know clearly which side we are on when that day comes. And God loves us so much that he wants us to be on the right side when that day comes. Verse 27, And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those, removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. You know, I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but as God prepares his last day people, his 144,000 to be ready to meet him in the clouds, there is going to be a shaking among his professed people. And some people will not be able to endure the thought of running with patience the race that's been set before us. And they'll be shaken out because they have roots of bitterness. Verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. 
So that's an interesting way for the chapter to end. It's like, look, God's going to speak. There's going to be a shaking in the church. And when he appears, he will be a consuming fire. But if you fall of peace and holiness, you, you will see God and you will not be consumed by his presence. But if you have roots of bitterness, those roots are going to be consumed by the presence of our God who is a consuming fire. So Hebrews 12 is a little bit of a... Of a a message that reminds us that, hey, God, He loves us, and sometimes He's going to chasten and rebuke us to prepare us to be His people, His 144,000 when He comes. And if we allow Him to do that, we will have the fruits of holiness in our lives, and when He appears, we will not have been shaken out, and His presence as a consuming fire will not destroy us. We will be with Him forever on Mount Zion. We will be with 144,000 on Mount Zion who follow the Lamb whithersoever He giveth. And that's the message of Hebrews for us. So we will finish Hebrews probably in our next class. I will not be here next week. I'll be at ASI. But two weeks from now, we will finish Hebrews 13. So thank you, everyone.